Welcome everyone to the Pacific Century podcast slash video at Hoover Institution podcast hosted by Misha Oslin, my co-host. So I hope you can see, I can see him really clearly, although he's got that strange blurred background going on behind Uh-oh. him. And John Yu, and this is a podcast on China, Asia, America, and the Pacific Century. So, uh, Misha, welcome. I hope this new experiment with video podcasting works, but I think you look much better on Skype than you do in person. John, I, I think this portends the death of podcasts. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be all audio. No, it has to be all video now. Just like TV killed radio. Well, to me, for many of you uh, watching or listening, I hope you know that here in the Bay Area, Stanford, Hoover, and Berkeley are all under shelter-in-place orders, which means we're not allowed to show up in a classroom and teach. We're teaching on Zoom or Skype, and what you're seeing right now is perhaps Scholar's worst nightmare, which is a one-on-one video with another professor. It's like the faculty meeting from hell. <laughs> so anyway, let's... Uh, like the Canterbury get... Tales for academics. <laughs> so let's uh, start with our show. We've got a lot to talk about. But we before do, we start talking about the topic of the day, of course, the coronavirus, China's place in the world, uh, the response of other Asian countries, we have something to celebrate, don't we, Misha? It's your new we, book. We do. Thank you, John. The new book. I don't know if it's coming through. Asia's New Geopolitics. Yes, indeed. It's on reshaping the Indo-Pacific. That's right. It is. Uh, I think this is the only copy in existence right now uh, with a foreword by our colleague Neil Ferguson. It's eight different essays on uh, geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific, long essays on China and Korea, Japan, the history of the U.S. and the Pacific and the like, available on Amazon or the Hoover Institution Press website right now. Oh, wow. It's available now. Okay. It, well, just... you can order it now. It'll come out in uh, in May. Oh, okay. You're such a tease. I know. Oh, great. I know. Well, give, give us a give us uh, some uh, ideas of some of the arguments you've got in there. Well, you know, actually, this was an experiment, uh, John. Um, it's it's a book of essays, so it, it's not one continuous thread. Um, you know, I had written a couple of histories in the last book. The end of the Asian century was an argument about all the dangers uh, inherent in dealing with Asia that I thought people were ignoring. But you know, there's so much more to write about, and and not all of it fits into you know a huge book narrative. So over the years, I've been trying to shift away from the uh, you know the 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 blurbing and the um, uh, doing a, a blog and and uh, op-eds and do some longer essays, because I think the essay form is is under dire threat these days. So uh, I would write an essay, let's say, in Foreign Affairs or uh, National Review or The Atlantic or a place like that. And usually they just, you know, that's it, they're done. But I thought uh, there were a number I really liked, and so I expanded them and updated them and uh, really tried to give a sense of, of how I, I see the region changing. So um, one thing that I think we've forgotten about is the concept of geopolitics. Uh, I think it's coming back slowly. Uh, but, you know, after the Cold War, when we thought it was the end of history and we thought that we can go wherever we need to and whenever and 
projecting power wasn't an issue. We we sort of dropped the geo out of politics. We we forgot about um, the constraints of distance and and the constraints of a particular geographic area. And there's a fascinating literature behind that. So I start off with that. Uh, I have a long essay on uh, the new China rules, the way that I think China is trying to impose its views on the world and punish those who don't accept its views. Um, there's an essay on what I think is the the most dangerous part of North Korea having nuclear weapons, which is uh, the fact that it's very hard to keep nuclear weapons safe. Not You don't necessarily want to use them, but they have accidents. We've had dozens of accidents. The Soviets had accidents. Uh, so, you know, are we going to trust Kim Jong-un to have a safe nuclear arsenal? Um, there's a very long piece on why Japan seems to be separate from the modern world, even as it self is modern. Uh, and one that I really like on Indian women, it's not really geopolitics, but the challenges that Indian women face as India engages with the world. Uh, and then a, a number of essays on the United States in Asia, including one that looks at our history, uh, the strategy that we've employed for over a century, uh, and then a, a final chapter on what would a U.S.-China war in 2025 look like, a war that happens by accident and in which both parties are trying to take advantage uh, of what what occurs and then not turn it into a an all-out conflagration. So a bunch of different essays, but I, I think that um, each one, I hope, challenges some of the conventional wisdom, certainly on Japan and Korea and India. Uh, one, for example, that looks at the Sino-Japanese competition, which we often overlook, but for many Asian countries is the real the real challenge. So uh, again, I, I hope a, a group of eclectic, um, interesting essays, you can be a lot freer with the essay form. And uh, I hope people get it and, and they enjoy it. And of course, when we have a copy, uh, another copy, we'll send it to you, John. Great. Well, it sounds like... Uh... Uh, subtitle could easily be uh, "Hard Power is Back," um, yeah, which is something yeah. we're going to be talking about on the show. So, right. uh, well, let's right. talk about the coronavirus uh, to start with. And of course, here in the United States, uh, many major cities now are undergoing something that looks like uh, quarantine orders. Uh, here in San Francisco, uh, I think we have the toughest one, uh, quote-unquote, shelter-in-place order, which says you can't leave your house, essentially, except to get food, medicine, or exercise. Um, at the same time, in Asia, particularly China uh, and South Korea, we're seeing uh, a turning of the corner where there are many more cases now of the coronavirus outside China, more deaths outside China then inside China, in both China and South Korea, uh, the rate of new cases has been dropping rapidly. So uh, one thought I would uh, toss out, if you hear what you think, Misha, is, uh, is there something unique about the way China, South Korea, other Asian, Japan responded to the coronavirus, uh, unique to Asian cultures or Asian governments, or was just just a question of picking the right policies, policies that could easily be reproduced in the United States or Western Europe as we start to undergo the first, I guess we're entering now the second month of the pandemic. Yeah, well, you know, not being a, a public health expert, a pandemic expert, a 
epidemiologist or virologist. You know, I, I, I want to stay away from sort of pretending I would know what, what should have been done. I, th- I think it's clear that different countries handled the Wuhan flu in different ways. Um, you know, China being an authoritarian country verging on, uh, you know, a very hard authoritarianism was able to lock down, what, you know, 700 million people. We, we don't really know. I think the biggest issue, by the way, is that we don't know what's going on in China. You'll notice that the Chinese media now talks about reinfections coming from people coming from abroad. Uh, now, given that it was a pandemic and given that it started in China, I don't know how many people are coming, going to China. Um, it sounds to me like they don't fully have it under control. And what they're doing, the same way that they blame the U.S. for the origin of the Wuhan virus, is to uh, now talk about uh, its foreigners that are infecting us. I mean, this is a propaganda war, John, that Beijing is waging. And it's very serious. I mean, the world is trying to fight uh, the the Wuhan virus and China's trying to fight a propaganda war. Uh, they don't want to be blamed for this, but the truth is the world should never have been put at risk by the Wuhan flu, ever. Uh, China knew about it at least in December, probably in November. Uh, they covered it up. They didn't tell their own people about it. They didn't share information with the world medical community. This should never have been allowed to escape Wuhan or Hebei or or all of China. And China is now trying with with lackeys and and enablers like the head of the World Health Organization to convince the world that it it did a great job that it that it it was the one that bought us time that it made us safer in the words of the the head of the World Health Organization who by the way wouldn't declare a pandemic for months this guy should be removed immediately from office the entire World Health Organization needs to be rethought the same World Health Organization that doesn't let Taiwan in by the way, because of China's influence. So the, the the world owes China nothing when it comes to the Wuhan flu. And by the way, you know, I thought I had Lyme disease a few years ago, and then I was really worried about getting Marburg or Ebola. Every time I get a cough, I have the Spanish flu. We <laughs> name diseases from where they emerge and where they are discovered. So don't let the Chinese tell us it's racist to call it the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus. We do that for everything. And in fact, I'll tell you what, I'll make a I'll make a a, a pact with with China's leaders, communist leaders. When they stop talking in their press about the African swine fever, which they talk about, I'll stop talking about the Wuhan flu. This is a, a serious moment in the world's I hate to call it, but the world's fight with China right now. They are trying to rewrite history, number one. And number two, they are trying to get the world to praise the Chinese governance model, the very governance model that caused the world pandemic. And if we let it happen and we have enablers in the West that say, oh, we have to call it COVID-19 as opposed to what we always call things, Spanish flu, it's been a century, we still call it the Spanish flu, China is winning an enormous battle. Because China, this is the last point I'll make about this, because China's governance model failed, because they created a pandemic and let it get out of China, the rest of the world, to one degree or another, is having to adopt authoritarian measures to keep their population safe. We don't owe China any thanks for this whatsoever. Well, I'm, I'm certainly with you about the idea that calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese flu is not racist. I mean, I'm Asian. I don't think it's racist. <laughs> it's so 
why should other people think it's racist? Uh, it's like, as you say, it's a locational thing. I mean, we call them Chinese restaurants. <laughs> we call good things from China Chinese. Right. Chinese art, Chinese That's restaurants. Right. I mean, those ra- is that racist too? <laughs> should we have to call it noodles with soy sauce? Then it's less it. specific because then it could be anybody in Asia making those noodles. Yeah, I totally agree with you that Perfect. that's just I mean, that's just uh, silly, uh, <laughs> although you do hear it in American discourse. Yeah. I also agree with you. Uh, it seems obvious that there was a failure of governance in China during the outbreak of the virus. This is exactly what happened with SARS, too. It's mm-hmm. just as uh, at that time, China was less integrated into the world. Uh, there was less travel and communication with China the way there is now. Who knows if SARS had uh, happened now, you would see equally broad outbreak. You of mean Guangdong syndrome, right? <laughs> okay. I like the I like your accent. Very good. Ooh, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. <laughs> Yeah, the, so I, I quite agree. And, and there's different things to think about. You know, we uh, now that the outbreak has occurred, China's clearly at fault. Uh, what are the things we can do? Uh, you know, one thing is how do we take care of the pandemic now? Do we copy the Chinese model? I would think not. I think there's a lot of things they did which we would not tolerate in a Western democratic society. But maybe countries like uh, South Korea or Japan are more appropriate for us to learn from. Those countries did not use these authoritarian measures, and they have, as far as I can tell, much lower mortality rates than China did. And so, uh, well, South you know, Korea was pretty. I think South Korea was pretty intrusive, and and there's going to be a lot of lessons learned, as there should be. Look, you know, you can't predict something like this. I mean, directly or or you know, in in its totality, but you can learn lessons. I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. Uh, one of them that that worries me, though, of course, is is the massive expansion of digital surveillance that may come out of this because of uh, the way that South Korea precisely started tracking phone users. Uh, China did the same thing to see who had come into contact with whom, so you could plot it and chart it. Um, uh, look, when there's a panic and when there's a real public health emergency, people demand that. I mean, let's let's imagine for just a second that. Um, uh, that the Wuhan flu had an 80% mortality rate. We wouldn't give a hoot what governments did to make us safe, right? Um, but the the way that the technology has so dramatically outstripped our understanding of how it's being used is something I think we at least have to take into into context. I, mean, I know you dealt with this in the Bush administration, but but South Korea was pretty invasive and intrusive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As you say, one element that they're using, that they did, that I think Israel is doing now, and people have talked about here, as as you say, is to uh, track the cell phones of people who've been tested and have tested positive for the virus, and then you can backwards track and figure out who else they came into contact with. You could also, theoretically, forward, you know, use the information going forward to make sure people don't leave quarantine or to make sure you know you could look on your phone and see where people are who have the virus and stay away, which actually might be very beneficial uh, for people just for private ordering to change change their activities. Uh, as, as you say, that that's all remains to be worked out. We haven't done it in the United States. There's a lot of legal issues, although I would just note that um, uh, if it were used for criminal purposes, you would need to have a warrant. There's actually a Supreme Court case about cell phone locational data. Nobody knows what the law would be if it's just used for public health and safety. So it's not used to throw anybody in jail. It's just used to stop, you know, it's just used to 
stop the spread of a disease, but there's no sanctions, there's no uh, you know, incarceration, there's no penalties involved, then it might be more like drunk driving checkpoints or searches at airports where you don't need a warrant. But it's just done to prevent to prevent some kind of harm from occurring. As you say, that's all got to be worked out. But it's interesting in Asian societies that was uh, done maybe with more ease. There was less uh, individual rights pushback in some of those countries. Now, China, you can't do that. South Korea, you could. It's a democratic country with. Uh, constitutional rights, but it was widely accepted in society. That's why I wonder whether there's any difference in how far you could go in Asia versus, say, Western Europe or here. The, the story of Italy is an interesting one because the reason why Italy is clamped down nationwide, according to what the prime minister himself said, was because the earlier orders were just widely ignored by Italians who have a tradition of refusing to obey their government. And so sometimes I worry, we might have gone too far here in the United States because I don't think people in the United States have that tradition. Most people pay their taxes on time and voluntarily follow requests for uh, or orders like that. And But we're, I think we're looking towards a nationwide clampdown, much like Italy's. Yeah. Yeah, look, there, there probably is something to that in terms of Asian culture. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues that go into it. First, there are are far fewer than, than here single-family homes in both China and Japan and Korea. Um, you know, people are living in much closer proximity. They're living in these buildings where everyone's touching buttons and they're passing in hallways. And so you can, as it is in Italy, and so you can see where people, uh, uh, if you remember SARS, I mean, it really changed life in Hong Kong for for a while. In fact, I went to Hong Kong, oh gosh, it was probably seven years after SARS hit. And every time flu season came in, they had people swabbing the elevators every 15 minutes. No kidding. And as soon as I, you know, coughed a little, the, the guys that I was interviewing, you were you know, gang tackled and oh my God, they would say they would it, off. It, it was like watching, <laughs> you know, that TV show Monk in real life. They needed wipes on everything. And, you know, it was it was crazy. So, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is something where they recognize that proximity uh, in extremely high density areas means you have to take more, uh, you know, more aggressive stances. And and one thing here that will probably, I mean, again, I'm no doctor, uh, that we'll probably be looking at over the next couple of weeks when they predict, you know, we're either going to hit that tipping point where it's Italy level chaos or we won't, um, is the degree to which the fact that we all can be, many of us can be in our houses and you, you're not running into people may mitigate this more than, uh, than in other countries. So, you know, our, our tradition is definitely one of, of, in general, don't tread on me and, and laissez-faire. But at the same time, when people are dying, you know, you will accept extraordinary interventions. And I, I have, you know, no problem with an intervention uh, digitally now. And it's just my own my own personal feelings, but I think it has a, a larger issue. It's a question of how that becomes normed for later. Right. It, it, to me, it's OK. I mean, I, I don't want to walk into a hot zone. Tell me on my phone where a hot zone is that. Yeah, that's I'll fine. Stay away. Yeah. But the question is later on, you know, uh, what what pretext might might this give to a government to say, well, we have to be monitoring more in order to catch things early or or, you know what, it worked in the in in X. So let's see if it applies to Y. That's that's the type of thing where the technology is there and it's it's going so fast that that none of us, I think, are really able to keep up with it. fully. Thing, the thing you mentioned, which I think is interesting, is how the uh, effect of the disease differs based on the nature of the society. Uh, you just point out Asia is far more dense in its cities than we are. 
another difference is uh, the age demographic. Right? The mortality, unfortunately, to this from this is very high amongst people who are older, over seventy. Extremely high for people over eighty. Doesn't seem to have killed any children. So it really has this effect on the age. And so one of the reasons it might have a, a more profound effect in a place like Italy or Western Europe is they have a much older population. Japan. And say a Korea. Yeah, Japan might uh, still be in for a serious impact. The United States is a younger country. Uh, China, you know, is getting older, right? They have this uh, coming demographic problem with too, too many uh, older people because of their one-child policy. That might make them actually even more vulnerable to these kinds of diseases going forward. That is a really interesting point. Right. Let's let's uh, switch and talk Although about the Spanish flu, of course. Mm-hmm. By the way, since we can still call it the Spanish flu, <laughs> yes. you know, that attacked younger people. So yeah. young, you know, everything's different, right? The younger people. I, I think you would have seen a much Personally, I hate to say it, but I think you might have seen a much more rapid response around the world. But but even here in America, if it had been kids who were dying, oh, yeah. you know, if you had 54 kids die in Washington, you know, and they all died from God, God forbid, a, you know, a nursery school as opposed to a nursing nursing home, you know, that that activates people in a way that maybe unfortunately they 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 look differently. And I'm not saying that's totally the case, but, you know, as parents, we all know we want to defend and protect our kids. And so you want immediate action. You don't want to see that whether this develops or not, you want stuff done now. And that's where the government intrusion can can really become much greater. Well, unfortunately, you have to worry about this. And actually, societies will be different about this as you're seeing in Italy, <clears throat> excuse me, already with limited medical resources, you have to triage who you're yeah. going to treat. And you would think you would treat younger people, especially children first, rather than older people. That's a choice no one likes to make, except in the National Health Service in Great Britain, where they do that all the time. Right? <laughs> but, you know, or the markets do it for us, right? Every good is actually scarce, most goods. And so in America and the West, we generally use markets. But in a country like China, an authoritarian country, or some other countries, they might have it be completely government directed and then you have to make these unfortunate choices yeah let's let's switch gears and talk about uh this piece that you just recently wrote and uh about china globalization and what the coronavirus means for that so uh misha why don't you uh explain to the listeners the basic argument of your piece which uh, i suspect i'm going to disagree with so let's uh, hear your yeah i hope so fun. it's getting boring <laughs> being locked up here in fortress austin we need some fireworks uh, Actually, well, the piece... know, after, uh, after about a week of the lockdown people finally start telling the truth <laughs> on their op-eds <laughs> in pandemic veritas <laughs> yeah. instead of in vino veritas in pandemicum veritas anyway uh the piece is up now on your lack classic education pandemic is greek yeah, well, <laughs> I, I knew that I, I don't, why do you think i didn't know that i, I know knew that. i knew you do it in I ancient japanese but not ancient greek. <laughs> so the piece is up at uh, real clear politics now it went up today and um it actually the rant that i gave earlier was was the opening part of the piece which is the world owes china no thanks and china's waging a propaganda war which i think is very serious yeah. um the 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 next part of the piece is about what this might mean for for globalization um First, you know, when we've talked about this before, the trade war that we covered seems so long ago and so innocent, you know, years, months ago, uh, the trade war was already leading, uh, as as well as China's macroeconomic slowdown, was leading to uh, a 
questioning of decoupling, you know, this this sense that the, the U.S. would be less dependent on China. You would find other um, sourcing. You you would find other producers and, and so on and so forth uh, all the way throughout the, um, the economic uh, through different sectors in the economy. So uh, this has already been happening, and we, and we know that it's it's something that people were beginning to debate about how far it should go, whether it was a good thing, you know, would the, would the trade war push it forward or cause a catastrophe? Um, pardon me. But I think that the, uh, uh, the pandemic raises a whole different question uh, about globalization, which is, um, in general, though people have foreseen it, but in general, the vulnerabilities that are introduced into both economies and societies, populations, by the type of hyper-globalization that we've undergone. And by hyper, I mean that you, you essentially have open borders. You know, you had Schengen, which might be dead in Europe now. You've had the U.S. with extremely open borders. You've had, you know, basically you can, to a degree, none of our ancestors could have imagined, go where you want, when you want. And uh, and we've done that both in terms of people as well as goods. And now we see that that contains risks. Um 20 years ago, as you point out, actually, with SARS, which which was really only in China, um, we would not have had this type of, of pandemic. But people can travel so quickly. And when the government doesn't do its job, they could infect tens of thousands before you even knew you had a problem, really. So I think there's going to be a, a, um, a questioning, uh, some will call for a reckoning over the vulnerabilities that are introduced with globalization. Now, that is not the same thing as saying end globalization. It is not a Luddite stance to say, let's go back to autarkic economies and we're all going to grow our own vegetables. Um, but it does, I think, raise serious questions about the degree to which unfettered openness has downsides that we need to address. And so, you know, you could take a very long philosophical argument. I would just say the three things that I wrote about that I think we need to reassess in addition to the question of just an open borders policy of whoever comes in, you know, whoever wants to can come in is three things. Number one, the pandemic has tragically but usefully um, made clear to Americans that we are dependent on China for our medicines. I don't know how many Americans knew that. Some people have. Some people have written books on it. Some people have testified about it. But it turns out that we produce almost none of what are called the active pharmaceutical ingredients in this country, 80 percent comes from abroad, mostly from China as well as India. Um, all of our ibuprofen comes from China. 45% uh, of our uh, of other drugs, uh, I'm just, of course, as usual. That's why having, it doesn't, that's why ibuprofen never works, no matter how much it you comes take. from China. <laughs> um, I'm forgetting what it was that 45% of that I mentioned the article comes from China. Somebody's yelling it right now. Um, the drug heparin, which is a, a blood pressure medicine, almost all of it comes from China. The point is we are incredibly dependent uh, on on China. Um, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, not because they're an enemy, but because you shouldn't be dependent on any other country for your medicines. Now, the, the globalization argument is, well, why? Of course, the, the global market's going to work perfectly. You know, you, when you get the medicines, you need the medicines, you get them. Well, China showed that the market doesn't always work uh, when you have political interruptions, such as the 2010 um, rare earths case. Uh, it was mooted about on Chinese media a week ago that if, if the U.S. continues to put up barriers to China, then we will be thrown into a sea of coronavirus, we being the U.S. So mm. we shouldn't be dependent. So number one, masks, advanced medical equipment, the respirators we need, medicines, active pharmaceutical ingredients, those should to some degree be made in the U.S. and it should be mandated as such a national 
policy, whether you consider them critical materials or you just want to say it's a it's a national industrial Michelle, policy. I have a, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for what you say. I actually wrote a book a few years ago called Taming Globalization, which John. maybe people will buy and read now. It, I want to read it. When it came, it came out about seven, eight years ago, and it made the point you did – uh, but that people hadn't thought about for a while, which is that globalization is not inherently good or bad. It has positive benefits, moving capital, goods, and people easily around the world means they're going to be used most efficiently. But it also allows all that stuff, transportation, uh, movement on the internet of ideas and money, also allows bad things to spread quickly too, like crime, terrorism, where things I was writing about, uh, but also – Diseases, pollution, right? The things that make all the – give us all the benefits of globalization allow bad things as well as good things to spread easily around the world. Uh, the Where I probably get off the ship or get off the – well, whatever transportation we're not allowed to talk anymore, where I <laughs> – deviate from you six feet behind you as we walk down a common path as we get our one hour of exercise a day. The, but where I guess where I differ is like, I'm not sure whether government mandating that right, the U.S. produce its own medicines, rare earths, is going to work. Um, I do think that what that the market will respond to this by causing producers to develop more than one source for these kinds of products because not just the pandemic, but the trade war shows that China is becoming an unreliable part of the supply chain. And so any sensible producer of anything, getting anything from China, not because it could be shut off for political reasons now, biological reasons, or just quality reasons, or intellectual property theft reasons, you're going to want to have an alternate competing source. It just seems to me a good business sense. I'm not sure whether we should rely on the government to do that or let companies in the market figure that out for themselves. So it would seem to me, say you you make ibuprofen for Costco, that's got to be a big business. <laughs> uh, I was just at Costco. They had a lot of ibuprofen uh, suddenly really? everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Um, no water, though. Well, it was weird. They had no uh, normal water, but there was enormous amounts of bubbly water, enormous yeah. <laughs> amounts of soda. The only thing that was sold out was the cheap water. So even in a crisis, Americans are still looking for a bargain. And I think that's a defining American. <laughs> still looking for something cheap, even during the middle of a crisis. But, you know, maybe you're the ibuprofen manufacturer. You were getting 100% from China. It is cheapest. But now you know that cheapness comes with a cost. And maybe it makes sense for you to also look to South Korea or Mexico or South America for a second right, second source of ibuprofen. Maybe prices go up slightly because the other source is not as cheap as China, but you have resiliency now in your production. I just don't know whether – I just don't trust government to be good at uh, making that decision. I, I think the markets will do it now, but I could be wrong. Well, look, I, I agree with you that I don't trust government to do it best, but I think it's clear we can't probably trust business. Uh, and and so first, I would say let's wait and see. You might well be right, uh, but I don't. I'm not sure we can trust business because if I were uh, if I were dependent on a sole source for for my entire livelihood, I make X. Why wouldn't I have already diversified? But the the fact is we haven't, and I don't think it should take a crisis to say that that's good business sense. But John, I'll actually even go one step farther. Mm. I don't think we should be sourcing it from anywhere abroad. I think it has to be made here. 
in a time of crisis, you can't trust anyone. We can't get masks. As soon as the, I, I blame myself for not preparing better for this, but as soon as this started to why jump, when I see pallets of toilet paper behind you on your sh- blurred sh- thing, that's why it's anyone. blurred. <laughs> this house is well defended. Just don't forget that. <laughs> as soon as this jumped, I went out and I bought a, a box of forty N95 masks, and already really? it was running low. Yeah, I did. I didn't get the good ones. I didn't get the they ones were available. With the, wow. the filters in front. Well, they were. They went to Home Depot, so I got them. They're all gone now. Yeah. But my point: we can't get the masks, and the masks aren't made here. No, I think this stuff not only needs to be declared by the government that some degree, some percentage of it, mm. needs to be uh, uh, not made abroad. It needs to be made here, right? And one thing that we're seeing, by the way, because we don't have control over these things anymore, which is the country that is now giving medical aid to Italy and around the world, it's China. It's not us. We should be the ones. China gave the disease first. I mean, they're getting it coming and going, right? They're getting it on the buy side and the sell side. We should be the ones who are giving the respirators because we have a superfluity of respirators. We should well, be the like, ones who are like giving They're like the masks. mafia. They break the window of the store and they say, now exactly. pay us protection money. <laughs> exactly right. You know, that's exactly it. So uh, so I think we need to, to bring it home to some degree. I don't know what that degree is, but if you say, look, we now have some evidence of how bad it can get. We need three billion masks. We're going to make two billion masks here, and we'll we'll try to get the other billion uh, abroad. And if you want to go beyond that, fine, you can go on the market. But but I, I think we're beyond the point. I think the vulnerabilities that that have been exposed, which you know we've had SARS, and we've had avian flu, and we've we had swine flu. You know, it's not that this is the first bad thing to come across a border that we that we suddenly say, oh, well, I guess globalization might not be the most optimal way uh, of dealing with it. So I, I think that business is probably not the place where you're going to find this coming from. Now, let's wait and see. As you said, uh, I certainly hope hope they do that. But there probably will have to be some incentives. Um, you know, we don't have nearly enough hospital beds. Our hospitals have closed down because we just, you know, we've become so used to defeating everything early on and nothing of real seriousness. If we get to an Italy-like situation in the next two to three weeks, uh, I think you're going to see massive changes. And what worries me is I would have rather, personally, rather seen it come from the market. But when it doesn't come from the market and there's no more time to make it, it's going to come from government. So let's be a little bit more prepared next time. Yeah, I'm just still very skeptical of the government's ability to order things properly. I'd rather have them, you know, we have a strategic uh, petroleum reserve, for example. I'd rather have the government buy up lots of masks and medical supplies and store them rather than That's trying fine. to uh, you know dictate where they're produced and where they come from i just think uh, you know, they, I, this has this happens periodically you know and i remember this was in the 80s and 90s this was a big issue too during the end of the cold war about control of rare earths control over technology used in weapon systems and the effort to have and the effort to have a certain amount of steel production and so on in the united states yeah, the reagan administration a free trade administration tried to do something like this, but it didn't work. Um, but anyway, let's uh, switch. Uh, I think something also uh, that flows out of this that you mentioned is uh, how's China going to come out of this? So our uh, colleague Victor Davis Hansen, for example, argues now in a piece this week that China is actually the lowest point it's mm-hmm. been in a long time because everyone now understands what they did, as you set out, and blames them. Uh, for the spread of the virus, imposing this huge cost on not just us, but the whole world. Um, It sounds like you argue that China actually 
uh, is also suffering in this sort of soft power world, and that's why they're responding uh, with this PR campaign. The thing that uh, worries me, or the thing that I see, is uh, not only is this accelerating this break between China and the U.S., but I could see China actually coming out ahead after this is all over. Uh, the economies are suffering in the West. Uh, oil is really cheap. Uh, you're seeing a lot of political turmoil here. Uh, China, on the other hand, uh, is weathered through the crisis faster. Um, we think they might, yeah, we think, but they might use. They might think too. They have no idea. The leadership doesn't seem to know what's going on in the country of the virus too, since their own officials won't tell them the truth. Uh, but it, China might come out of this uh, in, in worse shape, absolutely, but comparatively, in terms of relative have a sense, have gained yeah. uh, by seeing disruption in our alliances, seeing a shut, shutdown of travel between the Europe and the United States, are all of our, you know, the American economy, European economies essentially being thrown into recession. Maybe China, I'm not saying they would spread the virus deliberately for this purpose, but the virus is just an accident that happens to make them better off. Yeah, look, I, I think both you and Victor are, are right in that sense. I, I don't, uh, you know, again, this is why China is waging this propaganda war so viciously, uh, and and unfortunately, fairly successfully up up till now. Though there's the pushback is is coming, or starting a little bit, and and I think um, I think though that no matter how much you hear from the talking heads and those who's, you know, who've, who've been connected with China that this is, uh, you know, first of all, it's racist to blame China or or whatever. I don't quite think the world is going to look at China in the same way. You know, the whole world has been affected by this. If this had gone to one country or two, whatever, you know, maybe maybe not so much, but it's the entire world. And a lot of people are dying, unnecessarily dying. I mean, the people have died because of this, thousands, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so I think the whole world, you know, the people might start saying, well, you know, why is it that SARS is in China and Wuhan flu is in China and they have this African swine fever that's been decimating their... I mean, this is not a safe country. It does not have good public health. It does not have good industrial health. It does not have a, uh, a, a uh, an open and transparent government. I think people are, are, are now going to start being more skeptical uh, about it. But at the same time, to your point, I think it's unfortunately right. I mean, China is going to be seen by some countries, and it's already been doing this through one belt, one road, and, and uh, you know, debt trap diplomacy and other things, to buy favor. You know, it's sending respirators and masks. Jack Ma donated masks to the United States, for God's sake. Again, that should never have happened, right? And I agree with you. Get a get a strategic mask reserve and a strategic ibuprofen reserve so that we don't have to take Jack Ma, Communist Party members, largesse during the times of crisis. Um, but a lot of countries are going to accept it. And they're going to say, look, you know, China was the one who helped us because the U.S. didn't have masks to give us. Right. So there is a there is a hard, you know, whether that's hard or soft power, I don't know. And I don't like either term. It, China's influence can grow from this. There's no question. Uh, and it may well be that um, in the short run, because our economy seems to be imploding right now, that that their their economy is really hurt by this and hit hard by this. But, you know, we are we are very hurt, too. And again, totally unnecessarily. Let's not forget the stock market was at record highs three weeks ago or four weeks ago. Right. And now it's lost 30, 40 percent of its value again because of the Wuhan flu. Do not forget that our economy has imploded because of the Wuhan flu. There is no other reason it was doing yeah. just fine. No, the interesting question uh, is even if we have this 
uh, more rivalrous relationship with China than we've had in the past. Uh, they still have the ability to harm the rest of the world because of their poor internal practices due to the the links and travel and uh, globalization that you mentioned. So one uh, interesting problem is how do we stop this from happening again? And so this is a it's a, a kind of classic uh, game theory problem we study in school. Uh, you have uh, one person, one country, right, that's on the frontier on the frontier of some problem. They have an interest, as we've seen twice now, now here and SARS, in downplaying what's happening because they don't want economic travel and I mean sorry, travel and economic activity to go down the tubes if it's if it turns out not to have been a real pandemic. Countries like the United States that are farther removed from the initial start, we have an interest in getting as much information right away as possible so we can take countermeasures fast. We have actually, in many ways, the opposite interest of China because mm -hmm. they don't want to have the information out too quickly. We want it right away. And this dynamic, unfortunately, that you're describing is going to keep occurring again and again unless we can figure out a way to deter, coerce, encourage whatever you want to call it, China, to share information on its public health with the rest of the world immediately uh, rather than being opaque. They need to be transparent. I think the hard thing is how, you know, how do we do that? Uh, you know, you could say, you know, we study this within the United States with between, you could say, well, we could just pay them. We should just, but uh, that's not going to work. So unfortunately, it seems to me the other thing, and I think this is in line with what you're talking about, is we have to punish them when this kind of thing happens. And the thing that might punish China the worst is having its economy start to slow and not even grow because that's the underlying, right? That's the underlying uh, product that the Chinese Communist Party sells to its people as the reason for keeping it in power. Uh, the rest of the world has got to think about ways to harm China until it starts becoming a better actor and sharing information. But I think that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, I'm not sure how one does it. It's this is kind of it's a novel international problem we haven't had before. Yeah, I think it, it's uh, in that real clear politics piece. I call it the mortal paradox at the, the heart of Chinese power, which is in order to survive this type of thing, you need to be transparent, and yet transparency will kill the party. Let's not forget, we we're talking about a Leninist party state, and one that over the past seven, actually more than seven years, actually over the past decade, has has um, continuously become more authoritarian, uh, and and therefore shut down avenues of information that might have gotten out earlier. In fact, you know, you, you had SARS whistleblowers in China uh, back in 2003. And, you know, we have to, the, the one main whistleblower, uh, Dr. Li, uh, when Liang tried to blow the whistle on the Wuhan flu, and he was basically put under house arrest uh, and threatened, and he died from this. So, uh, you know, the, the party has become much stronger. Uh, and uh, so, just, you know, so, can I just throw, so your prediction is, you know, as the country becomes more authoritarian, more centralized, it's actually going to be less likely to be cooperative with us because they don't want to be transparent. Of course. 100%. So this kind of problem is going to get worse, not better. It has to be. And then look, they've just kicked out all American reporters for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the Washington Post. They are doing what they can to reduce the <laughs> That's world. That's actually window. something Trump wishes he could do here, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, look, you know, interestingly, what you point out about um, 
this this how do we respond in the future? In many ways, it's a lot of things that that uh, President Trump has been saying. You know, I mean, the question of open borders, just purely open borders. How does that put you at risk? The question of dependence on foreign supply chains. Uh, he, he talked about China, but in the past he's talked about Japan. We see it now. You know, we can't produce these things. So in many ways, uh, it, it it tracks with, with things that he and others who share this view, this at least some level of skepticism about globalization, have... Um, have have been talking about. Uh, you know, it, it it can be a clarifying moment. Uh, I would think Democrats in many cases, not Joe Biden, because Joe Biden is fully in the tank for China. I mean, it is it, it's a real problem, what you, what a real do you mean issue. By that? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, Biden, I've heard, Biden I've heard several people say that in the consistently press. Just, has downplayed mm-hmm. the China threat, uh, mm-hmm. has had, uh, we, we know, a family business from China, uh, worked to increase China's access while he was vice president. I mean, this so is, it's more, it's greater than just the Obama. Yeah, let's come back Obama to Biden in the future. Yeah, yeah let's come back to to Biden because I think it's a real issue. It's a real problem, along with the Bloomberg and Bloomberg's out, but Bloomberg's views of China were completely accommodationist. So I think we need to come back to those. But um, but many in the Democratic Party, I think would be just as worried about uh, and have been worried about the hollowing out of US industry the hollowing out of supply chains this to me is is it, whether you know it wants you want to deride it as populism or not this is this is the new common ground i think that's why trump captured uh, so many voters as he did and and may again you know once the hysteria from the wuhan flu dies down which is uh, you know we have vulnerabilities at home and those vulnerabilities have not been addressed yeah as as, as we've uh commented before, uh, one thing that will outlast the Trump presidency seems to be the uh, change in attitude towards China by not just one political party, but both political parties and much of the nation's foreign policy elite. And it seems that the Wuhan virus and this pandemic is only going to accelerate that process. It's only going to confirm that this change in policy, which has only been going on for Three years now, uh, you know, was the it might be the right strategy, and so we're going to be looking at a much more contentious, even hostile relationship between China and the United States than even the one when we started this show a year ago. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Well, but, it, but it will be different. I mean, you yeah. know, it's one thing to talk about trade, trade flows and tariffs. It's another thing to talk about a virus that can kill your parent. I mean, this is the world is going to have a reckoning even if it won't do it publicly, inside its own hearts, within its own breasts, it will have a reckoning about China and thinking about the ways it overlooked the costs of China's growth that no longer can be overlooked. All, all, look, diseases come from lots of different places, but very few on the scale that have come out of China as as number one. Um, governments always act in their own interests and cover things up, but but the way that this Communist Party government knew for two months at least about this and did nothing to warn the world or let the world help. The reckoning's coming, I think. I agree. I think, you know, if you, uh, we weren't in an election year and so sort of puts a halt to a lot of new policy, uh, you know, this would be a real opportunity for the United States and Europe to get together and come up with a common front. Uh, along with the East Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries on how to deal with China. The virus could be, this pandemic be, and the losses it's generating could be a galvanizing event to show uh, us and our allies that we have this common interest against this greater threat. Absolutely. Well, I, we, uh, I can't believe it, but we are already out of time. 
And so we've got to wrap things up. Uh, Misha, do you have anything you want to say in conclusion before we No, end? but I, I love that this is our first all-video podcast. It's It's so nice to see you. We have to do this more often. I'm only doing it because I can't go anywhere else. I can't get out of this house. It's driving me crazy. I think I, I might have to break out and, I don't know, run to a fast food. I might have to go to McDonald's and get arrested on the way. I'm Maybe try to flash my – try to cash, track, flash various <laughs> ID cards in the hopes the police will let me go. <laughs> um, but uh, – well, this has been a great episode. I hope it. I hope will be the first of many as we uh, shift from the podcast world to the video podcast world. Maybe I don't know. I think this might be the first one uh, that not just we've done that the Hoover Institution is doing. And I hope we haven't so scared off everybody that this is the <laughs> last one <laughs> that we do or the Hoover Institution is doing. So, um, everyone on behalf of uh, Misha Oslin and me, thanks for joining us for this. Uh, video podcast of the Pacific Century, and I hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Hoover.